we are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Welcome back to our three-part series on H-1B visas. My name is Dev Patel, and I'm an associate here at Classco Immigration Law Partners. This is our second episode in the series, and if you missed our first episode on the recent changes and trends, please make sure to listen. This episode will focus on key concerns for employers that hire foreign nationals under the H-1B visa. Again, joining me for this episode are Bill Stock and Michelle Madera. Both are partners here at Classco Immigration Law Partners. Thank you again for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Deb. Thank you. As you know, the new administration and the Buy American, Hire American Executive Order has led to both procedural and substantive changes for the filing of H-1B petitions. Can you provide some key issues employers are facing or have faced this, faced this past year due to these changes? Sure. Thank you, Deb. So one item we saw, which actually was not a result of Buy American, Hire American, but um, was a change we saw over 2017, was a freeze in premium processing. So what happened there was that the government was so backlogged in processing H-1B extensions um, due to the high volume of premium processing request cases that they put a pause on the whole premium processing program in order to ensure that they can clear out that backlog especially as they were going to be receiving cap cases in April 2017. So we saw about a six-month freeze on that. Um, as of now, they don't anticipate doing that in 2018, but we'll just have to wait and see if they, if they change their minds on that. We also saw a large surge in requests for evidence. These were focused on H-1B petitions, but we did see them across the board on L-1s, TNs, and other categories. Um, we've just been seeing a lot of pushback to ensure that the employers are crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's in justifying their cases and why they need these employees and how these employees meet the qualifications of each visa category. So this um, RFE rate has gone up to almost 50%, which is much higher than we had seen in prior years. I think that the RFE increase should be seen as part of a trend of requiring more evidence to uh, prove to the immigration service that an employer's statements are true. Uh, 20 years ago when I started doing this work, it was normally accepted that an employer would provide a truthful statement of the work that the person was anticipated to do, and the immigration service accepted that uh, uh, representation from the employer because, after all, it's made under oath. Uh, Increasingly over the last 10 years, we have seen the Immigration Service insisting on documentation and documentation that was not specifically prepared as part of the H-1B petition. So where or L-1 petition or an ANITA petition. So employers need to understand that, you know, essentially the Immigration Service says, prove that you're not lying to us. Uh, give us work orders that show that you have enough work for this person to do. Give us the person's work product, perhaps, so that we can try and make some evaluation of whether their work requires a specific degree. And they've done this in a number of areas. Uh, the definition of what is a specialty occupation, that is to say an H-1B job that requires a background in a specific field. Uh, they've done it with the level of salary. Uh, is an entry-level salary really appropriate for this worker, or is the worker entitled to a higher level of wage? Uh, and really, uh, 
second-guessing the employer's determination that the beneficiary has appropriate credentials to do the job. We've seen them questioning in all of these areas and really specifically asking for evidence uh, that goes beyond the employer's statements. Now, with all of these issues and the recent increase in scrutiny, why should employers still consider sponsorship of foreign employees? And what additional information should they consider prior to hiring someone on an H-1B visa? Sure. So employers should, you know, consider sponsorship in cases where they there's a gap in the U.S. labor market and they have to look to the foreign workforce in order to fill that gap. You know, when recruiting for any opening, they should be looking at the types of applications they receive. Um, are they getting a lot of U.S. worker applications that seem qualified? Um, you know, while the H-1B and other categories might not ask for a labor market test, you know, long-term planning would require a labor market test for most um, um Long-term planning would require a labor market test for most non-immigrant categories. So we would want to review that and see, is this case ultimately going to be successful for permanent resident sponsorship um, in addition to considering it for the non-immigrant sponsorship, that temporary visa category? And I think my counsel to employers is that they should consider immigration sponsorship as both a long-term investment need that this employee is going to need and that it's part of uh, kind of the total cost of acquiring the skills of this particular worker. Uh, just as uh, one worker might require relocation uh, and moving expenses, or another employer uh, employee might request a higher salary, or a third employee might request uh, to participate in a tuition reimbursement program, these are all going to be total costs of uh, benefit salary uh, and compliance that need to be determined as to whether uh, the H-1B worker is really necessary. This is a calculation we've recommended for employers for many, many years. Under Buy American, Hire American, I think it's really critical for employers to undertake this. Well, when hiring, based on 2017, what are some key issues that employers should anticipate and prepare for? Well, as I said before, I think the heightened scrutiny and the potential need to justify the employer's request for a non-immigrant worker as opposed to uh, the theoretical possibility of a U.S. worker is going to be more and more uh, important. And, and we've had some cases in which we've explicitly tried to address the Buy American, Hire American kind of idea by pointing out that the foreign national worker has key skills that are unavailable and that really will allow the employer to expand its business and hire other U.S. workers to support the non-immigrant worker uh, or that the non-immigrant worker's work is really key in providing analytical support or, or other kinds of support for the work of the existing U.S. workforce. So I think employers have to be prepared to justify their cases a lot more. They have to be prepared to reveal a lot more about their business uh, in their filings. Um, and they have to be prepared for the immigration service uh, to uh, kind of aggressively question their decisions to hire particular workers. And with this higher rate of request for evidence that we've been seeing, employers are also going to need to anticipate providing all of that evidence, as Bill mentioned, and also the time um, and labor that's going to go into gathering all of that documentation and putting it together. So, you know, not only will there be obviously legal fees if you use outside counsel, but there will also be um, time spent by managers and HR people in gathering 
resumes of similar workers and other um, information that's necessary to respond to these requests for evidence. There's also going to be long delays in the adjudication period. As we see requests for evidence um, increase, the timing of the cases take longer. If you premium process a case, we used to get a decision in 15 days. Now, if they issue an RFE, you have 88 days to respond. And within that 88 days, you can obviously respond faster, but you need to prepare the detailed response. Um, so that's going to push out the timing of the H-1B even longer. Um, so that's something to also keep in mind when planning and hiring. Now, when it comes to the 2019 H-1B cap, which we are quickly approaching, can you provide a general outline of key deadlines and any advice on when employers should begin preparing H-1B petitions? Sure. So a, a key part is the timing of H-1B cap cases. Um, they are very time critical because most years you only have the first five business days of April to get them in. So I would recommend to start looking at your workforce in December and early January to identify anybody who may be a potential cap case, speak to your legal counsel about them early on, um, because it's, it's critical that you hit that April 1st deadline um, or uh, the first five business days of April in order to ensure timely filing. Another thing um, is that part of the H-1B is getting the um, labor condition application in. With the high volume of cap cases, we tend to see those take longer than the usual seven business days as you get into late February and March. So the sooner you get started, the better shape you'll be in to meet all those targets. I think it's also important in the lottery to think about whether premium processing uh, should be used if it is allowed for uh, uh, cap cases. In, in past years, uh, employers were able to use the premium processing service with a case that they filed under the cap. The Immigration Service said that the 15-day clock would not begin to run until the H-1B lottery was concluded. So that usually takes the month of April. Basically, you would pay the extra premium processing fee. They would count the uh, 15 days as starting usually in late April or the first week of May, which is how long it takes the Immigration Service to uh, figure out how many petitions they received, assign each one of them a number, and do the random lottery that, uh, that is the selection process. There were a couple of big advantages to premium processing. First, you would get an email to know that your case was selected in the lottery, so you'd get uh, a little bit more time to plan for the employee uh, if they were or were not selected in the lottery. Uh, second, you would get the decision, or if there were any requests for evidence, you would have time to deal with it well in advance of the October 1st deadline. Uh, and the other sort of general thing in the past was that premium processing really did provide a higher level of service where you could uh, uh, provide documentation uh, or talk informally about uh, problematic things on a case. Um, what I would say uh, is really the case lately is that premium processing has become somewhat less worth it in terms of that premium level of service. The uh, RFE rate seems to be higher for cases that get filed under premium processing. Uh, and many times the officers are not as willing to engage in the kind of informal back and forth that often made premium processing worth the effort. So, you know, I think employers have to consider that 
you know, anecdotally, premium processing seems to improve the chances of selection in the lottery, although the immigration services have many times that that's not the case. Now, based upon the trends we discussed in the first episode of this series, and your experience with dealing with these procedural and substantive changes to filing H-1B petitions during a cap, do you have any strategic advice for employers on how they should go about filing their petitions? The first thing I would say is that you should have a strategic conversation around how you're going to deal with the cap and the potential for RFEs. There are two competing schools of thought uh, on how to prepare an H-1B petition for the CAP. The first is that a CAP H should be no different than any other H. You should put as much evidence as you can in the initial filing uh, with the idea that you will avoid a request for evidence by giving as much evidence as the Immigration Service typically asks for uh, based on RFE trends. However, when you're trying to prepare many, many cases in advance of a limited filing date, the other possibility is that you prepare a minimally qualifying case. You, you provide the employer's statement of what is going on, but uh, you don't provide supporting evidence because you're not sure whether the Immigration Service will request additional supporting evidence in a particular case or not. Uh, that is really the sort of strategic decision of do you do a full filing or do you do a minimally qualified filing at the front end you may save some effort over the summer uh, if you do that, but I would also point out that you may be anticipating last year's RFE and miss out on the opportunity on get an RFE in any event because of uh, a new RFE trend that develops. So I think it's a conversation employers should have with their lawyers about whether they want to try and uh, proactively avoid an RFE or whether they want to simply get cases in the lottery and then deal with the RFEs over the summer as they come. The second thing I think is really important strategically is to plan ahead for the request for evidence or for the notice of intent to deny. As we look at our cases uh, being filed, we say uh, to our staff, watch out for the gotcha language. Make sure that the documentation that we do present is consistent with the employer's hiring practice, is consistent with the other documentation that we're presenting. It's really critical to examine H-1B petitions with, uh, with a very critical eye to anticipate how an immigration examiner is going to be looking at them. Um, you know, if there is an 80-page or 60-page statement of work that would be provided to show that there's enough specialty occupation work, you may have to read that entire document to make sure that there's no information that would contradict anything else you've said to the Immigration Service. I think that one of the third area that employers need to be aware of is uh, wage levels are really going to be under scrutiny. Uh, in the past, I think there was always a temptation to look for a wage level that matches what the employer uh, thought was a competitive salary uh, and to take uh, perhaps a job that is at least arguably qualified uh, and to use that as the wage level. I think employers need to be very thoughtful about how they determine the wages that are being offered, uh, the categorization of the job, uh, and in some instances, I think, be prepared to only move forward with an H-1B at a higher wage level than they thought was the prevailing wage um, when they were thinking of initiating the case. So those are wage discussions we try to have uh, at the time of hire and before we even uh, are preparing the H-1B. So while the employee is still working on their practical training, I think it behooves employers to think ahead uh, about what level of wages are going to be required by both the H-1B and the green card process. So another strategy to consider is 
filing multiple LCAs if the job would fit into arguably two different wage classifications, um, meaning the occupational classification that is, assigns the wage level. The thought process there would be that, you know, we've seen some requests for evidence from the uh, U.S. Immigration Service where they actually say, you know, you've picked this category um, and we actually believe that it's this other category. So provide us an LCA that gives you that category for this posi um, position prior to the date of filing. And that prior to the date of filing is the biggest issue because usually most employers only file one LCA per H-1B and you don't have that other um, LCA to fall back on. So for jobs where you, know, you think it's borderline, that might be something to consider um, in order to cover all of your bases if that is a new, uh, an up and coming RFE trend we see in 2018. Now, going back to employers being proactive and avoiding these RFEs for petitions, are there particular issues that you would recommend getting ahead of? Yeah, so we would obviously want to consider what we've been talking about all along, the specialty occupation issues. Make sure that this job really does meet the qualifications for each visa category that you're um, considering that, you know, similar workers and your hiring practices are all aligned with that. Um, in order to ensure that you're kind of addressing these issues internally before it becomes an issue before the immigration service. So it seems like USCIS is making it very difficult for these H-1B petitions and for employers to hire foreign nationals. What ex advice would you give to employers going into this cap season? I think it's important for employers to understand that this administration, more than any administration in the past 25 years, is opposed not just to illegal immigration, but to every legal immigration program that is out there. Uh, that means that employers have to be prepared to justify and defend their use of foreign national workers. Uh, and so uh, should be selective, that they should be using these folks when they are filling uh, holes in the U.S. labor market. There are plenty of those out there. You know, we've seen that in the healthcare field, there's a shortage of uh, therapy workers. We've seen that uh, in the tech fields, uh, as many as half of the graduates of tech programs are coming from uh, overseas. So uh, employers do need these workers, but they're going to have to be prepared to justify and defend their use of these workers in the current environment. I would like to add that, you know, going forward, if employers feel strongly about their foreign workforce and rely heavily upon them, um, you know, it might be beneficial for them to become involved politically in these types of actions as we see uh, Congress and um, the president address immigration issues and introduce new bills um, and, you know, use their administrative processing, the notice and comment period and other options in order to um, voice their concerns and the issues that their businesses would face without their foreign workforce. Well, thank you again, Bill and Michelle, for your time and answering these questions regarding the H-1B cap and employer concerns. Uh, you can listen to additional episodes of our podcast on iTunes or listen online at ClassicoLaw.com. Be sure to look out for the final episode of our three-part H-1B series. The next episode, we'll be discussing common questions and concerns for employees. For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material?
contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed. Thank you.